And so for as long as we hold to biblical truth, we experience hatred from the proponents of these changes, redefinitions. And they're subtle and they're gradual, but it is a consistent expression of hatred towards those who hold to biblical norms. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part five of What Does It Mean to Be Found in Christ? from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text is the New Testament's first epistle of John the Apostle, chapter three. Okay, here's a group participation exercise. Raise your hand if you like to be hated. Yeah, didn't think so. We all like to be liked. We go along to get along. You want to be loved by God, right? I mean, you sure don't want to be his enemy, do you? So why would God want us to be hated by people that we know? In this part five, Pastor Paul Twist goes through the discomforting topic that to choose to love God may mean being hated by people that you know and know well. Is it worth it? Here's part five of what does it mean to be found in Christ? Don't be surprised, don't be amazed or startled when you experience enmity, hatred from the world. The world will hate you. John gives a theological explanation to that in the language that is akin to that of the new birth. He says, we know, verse 14, that we have passed out of death into life. We have passed from death into life. We've received the gift of the new birth because... We love the brothers. That's the evidence. That's the fruit, the testimony that we belong to this family. Whoever does not love abides in death. The world is of a different family. The world has not passed from death into life. And so the fruit of their family membership is that they hate the brother And indeed, John heightens the argument when he calls them murderers. You see how he connects this application back to the Cain and Abel narrative. He makes a reference back to Cain by saying everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. A lack of love demonstrates that you are of the same line as Cain, a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Again, I think John has the false teachers primarily in view. It's a curious use of the word brother there. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Undoubtedly, these false teachers would have been referring to the Christians as their brothers. And yet their actions didn't line up with what John is saying is true of the people of God. The difficulty for us when we read a text like this is quite simply that we don't are not, for the most part, experiencing the same outright hatred that these early Christians would have been. Very clearly, if they rejected the false teaching and didn't follow these heretics out of the church, they would have experienced 
an instant expression of hatred, maybe even physical persecution. Praise the Lord, for the most part, we sit here tonight not experiencing outright expressions of hatred from the world or physical persecution. And so the difficulty becomes how to appropriate a text like this to our lives and to feel its full force. There are, of course, many things that we could say in response. The first is simply to note that if you have any friendship with an unbeliever that is amicable and they know who you are, what the claims of Christianity are, what Christianity says about those who do not follow Christ, if you enjoy a friendship with an unbeliever in that way, praise God for his grace. Because the the amicable level in which you can cooperate with them is not in accordance with the theological reality that there is enmity in their heart towards Christians. And so it is God's grace that you have that opportunity to be a friend to someone that doesn't know Christ. And just consider the opportunity, the unique opportunity you have to share the gospel. Secondly, we could say that though it's true that the church in the West, in America, has enjoyed a prolonged period of peace and security, we need not assume that that would always be the case. It is entirely reasonable to foresee a day when the church in the West experiences physical persecution for our testimony. And then, of course, the third thing to say is that there is a consistent, though very subtle, expression of hatred towards the church even today. It's what often is referred to today as the moral revolution that we've seen played out over the last 20 or maybe even 30 years, the moral revolution that has gained a pace far quicker than anyone could ever have anticipated. The moral revolution, which has essentially consisted in lots of redefinitions, the redefinition of marriage, such that now it is no longer understood to be an exclusive union between one man and one woman, the redefinition of gender, so that now neither biology nor DNA inform whether you're a man or a woman. The redefinition of life itself, so that now a baby in the womb, if unwanted, need not be acknowledged as a human being. The moral revolution that we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years has at its absolute center an elevation of self an elevation of autonomy, an elevation of the individual. If the individual does not want to abide by that definition of marriage, change the definition. If the individual does not want to conform with that definition of gender, change the definition. If pregnancy is inconvenient at this time, change the definition. It elevates self, and therefore, by implication, it minimizes relationship to those around you. It minimizes love and care and concern for those whom the decision affects. And therefore, we can understand the moral revolution to be at complete odds with biblical truth. And so for as long as we hold to biblical truth, 
we experience hatred from the proponents of these changes, redefinitions. And they're subtle and they're gradual, but it is a consistent expression of hatred towards those who hold to biblical norms. I was speaking to an alumnus of the seminary just this last week, and he is having a tough time in ministry. And he was telling me of a church that is near to his church, the church that's nearby. I remember visiting many, many years ago. And I remember when I visited that church, how absent the scriptures were from the service. And then the news that I received just this week is that church has now fully endorsed homosexual marriage. Now, as you think through that decision, and however they've come to that decision, it is true that in days to come, if there is a conflict of worldviews within that community, that church is most likely to receive an easier time than if it had stuck with a biblical definition of marriage? Will that church have an easier time within the community as they embrace the redefinition of marriage? The answer is most likely yes. But it is of little benefit when you have forsaken your assurance and you have lost your joy in Christ. Christians must be those that hold to the truth, understanding that the norm is that that will bring hatred from the world. Jesus said, if the world has hated me, it will hate you. No servant is greater than his master. He established a norm for the Christian life. And I praise God every week that we get to meet in relative freedom here. That is not normal. There are Christians all over the world today suffering persecution for merely gathering together and professing the name of Jesus Christ. But we do it regardless of the consequences for many reasons. But here, John says, because it is intricate to your sense of assurance. Your fidelity to the truth, regardless of whatever hatred it brings from the world, is essential if you are to be in that precious place of knowing that you are in the Savior's arms. If you want joy in the Christian life, which is what John so desperately wants to give you, then you reestablish your expectations. And you know that hatred will come in many various forms. But it's of little consequence when you stand knowing that the Savior has you in his hand and you you live a life of joy as a result. Know that the world hates you, that you are not of the world. Now again, very practically, day by day, week by week, and in increasing measure into the future, this is a difficult truth for Christians to hold on to and to live out. And that again is where John so masterfully helps us. He goes on to the third point. Know that you are not of Cain. Know that you are not of the world. Third point, know that you are of Christ. How is it that you can learn to love like the Savior? How can you possibly start to tread out a path that looks 
like Christ in your love for those around you. You must know that you're not of Cain, you're not of his family. You must know that you're not of the world. You don't belong to them and nor should you look like them. But above all things, Christian, you must know that you are of Christ, that you are part of his family and that sets the way in which you live. John, with just such pastoral skill and theological precision, at the climax of his argument, brings Christ into view. And he says, verse 16, by this we know love. Here is how we know what love looks like, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now notice what John is doing here. I said already this evening, all the way through the letter, he just keeps bringing Christ back into view. Fundamentally, primary in the task of assurance is to feed our faith, to nurture our souls by taking in the Savior. And John does it here with such skill. And yet at the same time, and and the emphasis in this text is to see Jesus as an example. He shows us Jesus on the cross which reminds us of the atoning sacrifice by which our sins have been forgiven. But he is eager to make the point that this should be your example. When you study the cross throughout the New Testament, we see it's given to us from so many different angles. Sometimes we see the cross in its its atoning work. We see in terms of substitution. We see in terms of redemption. We see in terms of restoration. We see in terms of of cosmic victory. Here, we see the cross in terms of the example it gives us. And notice two things, the way in, in which John phrases this. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. He seems to put particular emphasis on Jesus's active involvement He was not passive as he was taken and nailed to the cross, but he was the author of that event. Jesus laid down his life for us. And notice the personal involvement that he exhorts us to. Jesus laid down his life for us. Writing to a group of Christians, most of whom, if not all of whom, most likely were not there present at Calvary. Jesus laid down his life for us. He wants that you appropriate this scripture to your life personally. It is a skill that is becoming less and less practiced in the age in which we live, which just majors on segregating relationships. I spoke for nearly half an hour on the phone the other day to a computer, and I felt like an idiot. And the computer would play this fake noise of typing as if to trick me into the idea that I was really speaking to a human being. And it just struck me how society is moving further and further away from real relationships. And John says, Jesus laid down his life for us. And he wants you to consider the narrative of the cross as your story, the story by which you have been saved. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience in love for you. Jesus 
stood trial and he opened not his mouth in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, but was led like a lamb to the slaughter in love for you. Jesus was beaten and mocked and spat upon and scorned in love for you. And Jesus opened up his arms and as the agent of all creation, the one who holds all things together. He was not powerless in that moment. He carried his cross and opened up his arms and he permitted the nails to be driven into his hands in love for you. So that as the timber was raised and he hung outside the city, the testimony of the biblical narrative is, I love you. It is a testimony of love to you, the Christian. And as we take in that reality, therein we find the ability to love as Christ loved. It is a biblical truth that we become what we see. That which we choose to take in, we are transformed into. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that we, we behold the glory of Christ, then we are transformed. And John wants us to take in the cross. And as you soak your mind in Jesus hanging in love for you, that is how you learn to love like the Savior. Now, what does that mean every day in your Christian life? John knew that very few, if any of us, would be called to die on a cross for our faith. And so he makes a wonderfully practical application of Jesus' example. He goes on to say, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's so important when you read 1 John to always be thinking of John's gospel. He's building this letter based on his experience as the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John's gospel has often been called the gospel of love. It's one of the major themes in John's gospel. And when you read the exhortations that John gives us and the imperatives, when you read John's theology in 1 John, you have to understand it as an expression of the gospel narrative. And so it is no surprise that as we revisit the cross in John's gospel, we see such a wonderfully practical application of love from the cross itself. Do you remember what Jesus said to John? As he hung upon that cross, he looked at his own mother. As he was in agony in his last hours on the cross, he said, woman, this, John, is your son. He said, John, this woman is your mother. And I love just how brief the statement is after that. From that day onwards, the beloved disciple took her home. And we don't know what life looked like day to day. But I imagine that John ministered to Mary. I imagine that John grieved with her, that John would pray with her, that John would provide for her, that John would seek to protect her and care for her 
and love her. Because it was from the cross when John beheld the Savior suffering for the sins of many that the imperative was given to love Mary. And so we just look around. We look and we see the Christians that God has placed you in community with. You see the members of this church and you understand the responsibility that we have to love one another. Not in talk, but in deed and in truth. There are needs represented in this room, a brokenness that is so much greater than you could ever know if all you do is turn up and consume and go home. If all you do is show up, you'll never get to know the needs that exist in people's lives. And it is not that kind of love that John is exhorting us to. He wants you to show up and to be involved. He wants you to lay down your life for the members of this church, to learn and to know how it is people are in need, and to think through with what it is God has blessed you with, how you can meet those needs, how you can minister to the brothers and to the sisters in Christ. Keeping Christ in view, we take in Christ and we love the brethren. We take in Christ and we love the brethren. That is the formula that John gives us. And again, there are so many reasons why we must live like this. In 1 John, he says, you take in Christ and you love the brethren because it is so foundational to your assurance. And if you want a full Christian life, abounding in joy, having that certainty of belonging to the Savior, you take in Christ, and you love the brethren. May this be the way that we love one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for the cross of Jesus Christ. It secures our salvation. It is when we trust in the cross of Christ alone for our salvation that our sins are forgiven and we are made right with you. It is also our example. And John shows us the cross this evening as the example by which we are to love. How do we learn to love like the Savior? We take in Christ. And as we behold the man upon the tree, we learn how to love the brethren. Not in talk, but in deed and in truth. May we please love that way. I pray that by the working of your Spirit, this church would be defined by its love for one another. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Does it seem masochistic or risky business to follow God if people may end up hating you? Who wants that? Maybe Jesus wants it for you. He thought it was worth being hated by the world so that he could love you. He knows what it's like. A type of love that is so strong, many would hate him for it. Is it worth it to you to follow him? Our Father God tells us it is. If you'd like to know more about following God and giving your life to Jesus, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org, 
On the homepage, select Broadcasts, where you can listen to earlier parts of this series and other gospel teaching to help you. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If the solid Bible teaching of this program draws you closer to Jesus, will you consider making a financial gift to be part of what God is doing through this outreach ministry? Your support will help us continue to reach thousands of souls with the good news of Jesus. On the homepage of TimelessTruthToday.org, select Donate to make your gift of any size. Join us tomorrow. It's part six in our series, What Does It Mean to Be Found in Christ? I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.